All right, everybody, go ahead. If you have a Bible, as Philip said, open it uh, with us to Luke, or excuse me, not Luke, John. John chapter 18 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, the pastor knows what's going on. Yeah. Um, John 18 verse 1 is where we're going to be spending some time as we just walk through uh, the book of John little by little, right? Continuing our sermon series here. Uh, chapter 18 verse 1. The words will be on the screen if you need them. And it's just a, so good to see you this morning. So good to be here on Father's Day and gathered all together for one service. Normally we have two services, which means, you know, I preach a total of like 80 minutes. So, you know, we're only doing one service. So I get, you know, a little bit longer of a sermon than normal today, right? So that's just, that's how it works. Um, Again, my name is Matt, one of the pastors here, and uh, just so glad that you're with us. I also want to pray for us as we get started. So would you join me in another word of prayer? Father, thank you for your word and uh, that we can come together as a church family, as your people, and look to your word together. We pray, Father, that you would teach us. We pray that by your spirit, you'd help us understand what we read and apply it to our lives. Holy Spirit, would you come and guide us in the text this morning? Uh, We love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've recently uh, become aware that a a growing number of men, uh, many of whom are my peers, suffer from a medical condition uh, known as PHB. PHB, and it stands for partial husband blindness. (laughs) This is a condition where your wife asks you to grab something from the other room or you're at home looking for something on your own and you can't seem to find it even though um, it's right in front of you. You can't see it and you're convinced that it's been moved by your spouse or it's been lost or thrown out, but in reality, it's right there in front of you. Uh, Anyone, raise your hands. Okay. Um, You know, a bottle of ranch dressing, a hairbrush, stick of deodorant, your keys, important folder that was on the desk. You know, honey, where did we put the blank? And and you hear from the other room, it's right there. And you know, no, it's not. And then, but it it actually is there. Uh, Medical professionals aren't sure of the cause. Deteriorating eye function, laziness, aversion to, you know, a thorough search Maybe a psychological thing dating back to childhood, wanting to be helped, something along those lines. Men, if you suffer from PHB, I stand with you. (laughs) I too have this condition, and I don't know if there's treatment for it, although I'm sure some very dedicated wives are in the lab somewhere trying to figure it out. I'm sorry to make this jab on Father's Day of all days. I know, man, I'm sorry, Uh, but it's... It's coming right out of the text. You'll see the connection, so I had to, I had to go here. But isn't it amazing that uh, sometimes something's right in front of us and we just can't see it? And this not only happens to men, but also, ladies, you're not off the hook either. It's right in front of us, but we can't see it. And most of the time, or often, it's inconsequential, right? Still the examples like we just spoke of. But in certain parts of life, uh, blindness or partial blindness can have some really devastating consequences. There's, of course, a spiritual parallel here, right? Sometimes God places things right in front of us, uh, but we're blind to them. You know, Jesus spoke about this back in Mark chapter 4. He quotes from the Old Testament, talking about people who see, but don't perceive. They see things, but they don't really see what's there. And so sometimes we see things, 
But we don't really see what's going on, the bigger picture, or what actually is there. And we see a devastating example of spiritual blindness here in John chapter 18. Philip read it for us, but look at the text again, verse 1. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. And on the other side, there was a garden. And he and his disciples went into it. Now, Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Now, just a little context for what we're reading, especially if you're new here and haven't been journeying with us through the Gospel of John. This is a new section of the book of John that we're walking into. Okay, so for really a few months now, we've been uh, in the same sort of context of the book. Chapter 13 through 17 has really been the same uh, moment, really, we've been exploring where Jesus is with his disciples uh, at the time of Passover in Jerusalem, right before he is arrested. And we see, you know, back in chapter 13, he washes his disciples' feet, and then he teaches them about all that is to come, his coming death, the coming of the Holy Spirit, all that that will mean, and then he prays for his disciples, and it's all part of a section in the book known as the farewell discourse, right? It's Jesus really saying farewell to his disciples this one last time. But that ended in chapter 17, and so now at the start of chapter 18, we see that things are accelerating, and the sequence of events leading to the cross are unfolding, And so Jesus is with his disciples after he prays for them. They enter a garden just east of the city of Jerusalem. And Judas leads these soldiers and officials with torches and weapons to come and arrest Jesus. And in one sense, you know, the passage and the events here are pretty straightforward, right? Judas betrays Jesus. Religious leaders want to get rid of Jesus. And so they come to arrest Jesus, But if we stop here for a moment and look at some of the details in the text, right, we'll see that there's a lot to reflect on. For example, look at, again, who is coming against Jesus. Verse 2, it identifies Judas, who betrayed Jesus. Verse 3, it mentions again, Judas led this mob. If you skip ahead to verse 5, actually, you'll see again, it mentions Judas the traitor. So three times in four verses, we're reminded, hey, Judas was there. Hey, Judas was there. Don't forget, Judas was the one who betrayed Jesus. And then we'll come back to that. But verse two, it tells us there's these Roman soldiers and mostly it seems officials from the chief priests and from the Pharisees. So kind of these uh, religious police, temple police sent by the religious leaders of Jesus' day who have been, conflict, been in conflict with Jesus all along. And so throughout the Gospel of John, we've seen this theme of conflict between Jesus and the world, between the world that rejects Jesus. His glory and light shines, and yet there is unbelief from the people. And both Jews and Romans here are mentioned as we have Jewish leaders sending officials and Roman soldiers present. But there's a special irony in that, as John 1 tells us, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Jesus, a Jew, came to the Jews as the Jewish Messiah, and yet the Jewish leaders and the chief priests, I mean, those who knew the scriptures, 
who, who really were supposed to recognize him for who he was. They knew the scriptures better than anyone. They were the ones most likely to celebrate his arrival. And yet they are his fiercest opponents. And then we have Judas. Three times it tells us Judas is at work here. Judas, one of the 12. I mean, Judas was in the inner circle. Judas saw the miracles. Judas participated even in some of the miracles. He heard the teachings. He sat at the feet of Jesus and somehow even Judas missed it. I mean, the people here coming to arrest Jesus are the very people who should have known who he was. I mean, it was all right in front of them. How did they not see it? And see, if you read through the Gospels, you'll see a number of things contribute to their blindness. First, they're blinded by their fear, right? They're afraid of losing their power, their authority, their popularity, their influence. They're blinded by their pride, right? They think that they know the way. They don't need to be taught. They're closed off to this new way of Jesus. We see they're blinded by their selfishness. Judas especially. We see the greed in his heart, his love of money. And so we can stand back, you know, and and be stunned like somehow they missed it. How? It was all right in front of them. And yet we see their fear, their pride, their selfishness blinding them. And we, friends, do the same thing today. Some of us have been in church or around church for years. And we've seen, but we haven't really seen And some of us don't come to Jesus for some of the same reasons. We're blinded by our fear. We're afraid of what submitting to Jesus will mean for us. What what surrender will mean for us. That we're no longer on the throne of our lives and Jesus is. And so he has the power and he has the authority and he has the say-so. And we don't like that we're going to have to change the way we live and change the way we think. We're afraid maybe of the call God will put on our lives and where he'll send us or who he'll send us to or the sacrifices it will require or maybe the public shame that'll come for identifying with Jesus. We're afraid. And I know I can look back at my life and I can see a number of opportunities and things Jesus put in front of me that I missed because of my fear. Some of us here today aren't really blinded by fear, but maybe we're blinded by pride. We think we know the way. You know, we don't, we don't, need, don't need a savior. We're a pretty good person. Better than most, maybe we'd say. And though we, you know, in our culture, praise open-mindedness, we're closed off to the claims of Jesus. I mean, we make room for, you know, any kind of number of spiritual expressions, but we know, we are, we are sure that Jesus is not the only way. Well, we know for sure that what Jesus is saying can't really be the answer. And so we're closed off rather than being open to hearing Jesus on his own terms. So we're blinded by fear. We're blinded by pride. And some of us are blinded by selfishness, right? We want to pursue our own comfort, our own pleasure, our own gain without thinking much of the bigger picture beyond the temporary And so this mob with weapons at night comes and can serve as a warning to us that we 
could humble ourselves. And that we would pray to God and ask him to help us see so that we wouldn't be blind like they were. Now notice what happens next as they arrive. Verse four, Jesus, it says, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas, the traitor was standing there with them. Again, reminder, hey, Judas was there. Verse six, when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now see how this unfolds. So the mob approaches and Jesus knows what is coming, and he kind of initiates here, and he says, well, okay, who is it that you want? Jesus, they say, and he says, well, I am he, and when Jesus says this, the text tells us they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, there's a lot going on here. So, in, in the Greek, Jesus' response, as you might know, is uh, the phrase ego a me. Two Greek words that could be translated just how it is here. Uh, I am he. Yeah, that, that's me. He's simply answering their question. You're looking for Jesus you know, I'm your guy, here we go. But for the careful reader of John's gospel, we know that ego me is a phrase packed with meaning that has connections all throughout the book and not just the book of John, but stretching back to the Old Testament. That phrase, ego me, is it's a Greek translation of the Hebrew name of God as God reveals himself uh, back in Exodus chapter three. If you remember Moses, in the burning bush, and God calls Moses, and Moses wants to know, hey, who should I tell the people that is sending me? And it's there that God reveals his name. And he says, what? I am. Tell them I am has sent me. That I am in the Hebrew translated into the Greek is ego a me. It's God's self-revelation, revealing his name. And it was a name that was to be viewed with, with fear and awe and, and reverence. The, the great I am. And throughout the Gospel of John, we've seen that phrase, ego me. I am up here a number of times connected to Jesus. Do you remember some of them? We saw, of course, the I am statements that John is famous for, the seven places in the book where Jesus says, I am, and then a description, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the good shepherd, I am the true vine, I am the resurrection and the life, and on and on. And not only do we see these you know, seven I am statements with those descriptions, we also see at least seven other times in the book where ego a me is used and connected to Jesus, where he says, yeah, it's me. I'm the one. I'm the one you've been waiting for. Most notably, chapter 8, 58, where Jesus says before Abraham was, I am takes the divine name from Exodus chapter three. And here it is, arrest. We see it again multiple times in the text. Ego, me, I am. Put all this together, not just for some abstract, you know, grammar lesson or Greek lesson, but it's to see that Jesus is making this, this clear claim to divinity, that he is God himself, God in the flesh, and sometimes skeptics today will claim, you know, critics of the Bible will claim, well, Jesus never really, you know, thought of himself as God. You know, he was a good teacher. And then we like later kind of, you know, made that part up or embellished it. And so Jesus didn't think he was God in the flesh. But again, if you understand the Old Testament, you can see really clearly that what Jesus is doing here in a very Jewish way is making this claim. And those in the first century saw exactly what he was doing. 
And that's why a number of times we'll see in the gospels that they wanted to kill him because they say, you, a mere man, are making yourself out to be God. So he's taking the name of God revealed in Exodus chapter three in the Old Testament and he's connecting it to himself. It's a massive claim with massive implications for our lives. And John adds this detail in verse six. You see, when he says this, they, the crowd drew back and fell to the ground. And, and there's some debate about why. You know, some will say, well, throughout scripture, we'll see when someone, you know, encounters God and they're in the presence of God, they have this involuntary reaction and they draw back. Maybe some would say that they fell back out of fear about what he was about to do to them because as God, he could do some really powerful stuff. Or maybe it's just a simple, you know, kind of in general uh, cultural terms and in, in powerful religious experiences, you could be overwhelmed and, and fall back. I, I don't think we can maybe say exactly what is going on other than seeing this powerful reaction to the presence and the claim of Jesus. And think about it, if this is true, if Jesus really is who he says he is, think about the implications in your life. God in the flesh. If that's really who Jesus is, it means some things. First, it, it answers the question of authority. Right? He's not just like a nice teacher who said some, you know, quotable phrases and take it or leave it and, you know, do what you want with it. No, it means he's the creator God of the universe with authority over all things, which means our response then, our only proper response is to surrender and to obey and to follow. But this also tells us something else, not just the question of authority, but it it tells us about who God is. That God is one who draws near to us. Right, and you can look at other religions or spiritualities or claims today, and often many of them, are, or most of them are about God is out there, up there, somewhere, God or ultimate spiritual reality or whatever label they might put on it. And, and we have to find a way to get to it. You know, we got to behave or obey or, or work our way there or become enlightened enough. Like there's a ladder and we got to climb it. But if Jesus is God in the flesh, then the message of the gospel is the reverse of that. And it's not, we have to find a way to climb the ladder to get to God. It's God actually came down to us. And the gospel isn't about you figuring out how to, you know, search for God and find him out there. It's about God who came to search for you and drew near to you to walk with us and be near to us. It's a, it's a truly unique claim. So the, the arrest continues. Look at how it unfolds. Verse seven, again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. There's ego in me again. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. And this happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I've not lost one of those you gave me. Now, okay, p- picture this. this. This is so good, you guys. <laughs> so fun. Uh, even though the mob has weapons, right, and torches, and they're like, they're the assertive ones, right? They're like in charge. They're, they're coming to take action and, and arrest Jesus, you know, kind of like, you know, Beauty and the Beast style. Let's go, let's, let's go, let's get him. Um, Jesus is the one who's in control of the whole situation. It's, remember how it starts, you know, they, they come and Jesus, he, it says he knows what's coming. And so he goes out to them. Hey guys, you know, who, who, who are you looking for? Um, let's get this started. And they, he tells them, yeah, I'm, I'm Jesus. That's me. 
and they stumble and fall back. And then here in verse seven, it's like he reinitiates, you know, the sequence of events. It says, he says again, hey, again, who, who is it that you want? And it's almost like they like stumble back at the first response. Then he's like, they're disoriented. He's like, okay, guys, you know, like, get up on your feet. Does anyone need a water break here? Like from the top, let's start this over again. Let me, let me help you. Uh, you. You good? Okay, we'll try this again. Who is it you want? <laughs> and he re-engages, like, let's move this thing along. You know, we got a schedule to keep here. Um, and again, and again, he answers, ego and me. It's, yeah, it's me. He's in total control. And then he says, let these men go. And I love this. You, you see the simple detail. The, disciple, the disciples are spared, right? He says, hey, take me. They let them go. And we, we see this, this foreshadowing of the gospel here already, that, that he steps forward to judgment and arrest, and, and his disciples go free. And so he's not hiding, cowering, you know, behind a tree in the garden. He gives himself up. And even though it appears like the men with the torches and the weapons are in control, we, we see who really is. Like Psalm chapter 2, if you're familiar with Psalm chapter 2, it talks about how the nations the kings of the earth rage and plot and conspire in vain. And God looks down on all those powerful people in charge and he simply, it laughs, he says. Because he knows who's in charge. It's him seated on the throne. So even though we think we're often in control, we're really not. And so then it's comforting for us as followers of Jesus because even when things look or seem or feel out of control, they're not because we know the one who is in control. And that's no small thing, right? Because many of us face uh, challenges in life. Life can be hard and scary. And many of us today are looking out at our week and the things ahead, and we have things that make us feel overwhelmed. You know, and we deal with health issues or job loss or uh, fears of, you know, yeah, our, our finances going out or wars, pandemics, supply shortages, you know, the list goes on and on. Or maybe worried about the next election or corrupt leaders. Or isn't that like, what you know, the political commercials, they'll stoke the fear. Can't let that person get elected because then, ah, or you can't let that person get elected because then, ah, the world's going to end. It's just fear after fear. And so maybe life for you in, in some of those ways or others, it feels like you're in a garden at night and there's an a armed band of people coming after you, surrounding you, closing in on you. And if that's the case, then sleep well, friends, because you know the one who is in charge. And even if things feel like they're out of control, they're not. Now, the, I love what happens next, you guys. It's so good. This is so good. Look at verse 10. Okay. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Okay, we got an action movie here now, people. Peter draws a sword, a sword fight, chopping off people's ears. He's impulsive and he's brash. And once again, he misses the point. He's like, you're not going to arrest Jesus, right? I'm going to chop off your ear. And he takes a swing at the mob and he chops off Malchus's right ear, the text tells us. And he probably wasn't aiming for the ear, right? Right? No one's like, I want that ear. I'm going to show you. No, he's aiming for something else. And, and Peter just shows us what we so often do. We're, we're threatened, and so we say, let's fight. You know, you, 
They brought weapons. I've got a weapon too. You know, if someone slaps you on the cheek, uh, don't turn the other cheek. You know, you slap them back, but harder. You know, that's, that's what Jesus actually said in the Greek there. A, that was a joke. He didn't say it. Um, and there's two problems with what, what Peter does. The f- two things. First, he, he fights just how the world fights, right? They come with weapons, using their power to try and uh, take them by force. And, that's, and Peter's trying to answer that right back. You got a sword, well, you know, here's my sword, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to swing it at you. And so often, we, we just fight how the world fights. And I've done this. I've told, I've told you guys this before. I was, when I was... I've done, said some dumb things, done some dumb, th- dumb things in uh, kind of zealous, young Pastor Matt, if you could picture. Um, and, you know, talking about faith or trying to share the gospel or debate, you know, people who maybe view things differently. And, and, and sometimes people, you know, will get snarky and throw some jabs at me. And so rather than being like, you know, gracious and kind and patient and, you know, I'm like snarky right back and well, I'll, I can throw some snarky jabs your way too. And, and God always convicts me. It's like, Matt, just stop it. Stop it. Like, what are, you, what are you doing? Because you're not sounding or acting any different than they're sounding. And if you truly believe the gospel and have the love of God in your heart and the Holy Spirit in your life, then you really should show some fruit, something different than the world around you. And, and I've found um, through my own errors that you can you know, win an argument but lose a person. And so not just matters what we say, but how we say it. Not just what we do, but how we do it in the world. And so God convicts us, he convicts me, hey, quit swinging your sword at people. Instead, could you show the world what a follower of Jesus looks like? Could you uh, teach and share the gospel with patience and gentleness? With love and joy and peace and, and kindness in your heart? Could you show the world what grace looks like? Because look how Jesus responds. Verse 11, Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Put your sword away, he says. This isn't how we're going to win the fight. It's not how we're going to carry ourselves here. And sometimes we, again, like Peter, we just fight how the world fights. The second problem is that Peter misunderstands the mission. And we've seen this before, right? Jesus says he's going to go to the cross and die earlier, and Jesus rebukes, or excuse me, Peter rebukes Jesus. No, Lord, that's not the way this is going to go. And Jesus says, you don't understand. And Peter tries to stop Jesus from washing his feet a few chapters earlier, and Jesus says, Peter, you don't understand. And now Peter here tries to stop Jesus from being arrested and going to the cross, and Jesus says, Peter, you don't understand. He misunderstands the mission. See, Peter wants a savior, as we've often pointed out, who is strong and victorious and wins a certain way. Peter doesn't have room in his view for a savior who is humble and sacrificial and suffers and dies. And so to Peter and many of us, the cross and suffering and death seems foolish because we want, we want to win. We want victory without death. We want up and to the right Christianity, right? Upward mobility Christianity. We want blessing and comfort and political power 
Upward mobility, influence, status. But Jesus shows us that really his way is one of downward mobility. And that's the way he calls us to, a way of weakness and humility and often suffering and serving other people. Something that often looks like death and looks like failure to the world. And yet that's exactly how Jesus brings about his power and victory and transformation in the world. He says, put the sword away and instead go the way of the cross. Now we've got, got to make a quick side note here. Guys, I love this part of the story. Peter, okay, Peter chops off Malchus's ear, right? Okay, verse 10, chops off his ear. Now, John doesn't give us this detail, but if you read uh, the Gospel of Luke, the same event, he adds in a separate detail, and he tells us, Luke tells us, that Jesus there in the moment touches Malchus's right ear and heals him. On the spot. It's, it's amazing. And so it's so cool how Jesus works because Jesus steps in and takes this, this huge blunder. Or like, Peter, you have no idea what's going on. You're swinging swords at people. Stop it. And he takes and redeems Peter's destructive and foolish actions. But think about it. From Malchus's perspective, his ear just got chopped off. And then Jesus is there. And he comes to him and he, he touches his ear and he heals him on the spot. I mean, think about Malchus going home that night. Like, you know, honey, how was work time? Uh, you know, like some, some crazy stuff happened. Got my ear chopped off. Your ear got chopped off. Well, hold on. There's, you know, and then this man, Jesus, he, he healed me. I mean, I, we don't know what happened to Malchus after, after this I mean, this, this had to be like top five moments in his life, right? <laughs> it had to be top five. Uh, this, this personal, profound healing encounter with Jesus because of the blunder of one of Jesus' followers. So Jesus can take even our blunders and redeem them and, and, and touch people in powerful ways even where we mess up. That doesn't give us license to go, you know, swinging swords. Jesus is going to fix it. Don't worry. That's, that's not the idea. But it does give us hope. And it can encourage us when we do fail that Jesus can use it. This is for someone here this morning. Many of us, right, look back at some of our blunders and failures and ways. You know, you ever just look back and like, I totally messed that up. I had an opportunity and I totally blew it. I totally said the wrong thing. I totally hurt that person. You can look back and say that God can even redeem that. I heard once of a pastor, maybe I've shared this before, he had a Bible study with a group of young guys and after reading this passage, they decided to name their Bible study the Ear Choppers. (laughs) Because they just resonated so much with this story. Like even when we blow it, even when we totally mess it up. Jesus is going to come along and heal and redeem and use it in powerful ways. So we're the ear choppers. I was like, that's, that's pretty cool. Let's make some t-shirts, you know, or get some tattoos, you know, dedicated ear chopper. It just tells us the, the incredible power and how amazing Jesus is. So the last piece we have to see here, verse 11, Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. And then this last line, shall I not drink the cup the father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its 
commander and the Jewish officials, officials arrested Jesus and they bound him and led him on. So his last words here before being arrested, shall I not drink the cup the father has given me? So he's saying, don't fight them, Peter. Don't, don't resist this. And the reason is because Jesus sees the mission that he is to drink the cup the father has given him. And so realize that even here, the events that are unfolding are part of the sovereign plan of God. Though wicked men in their sin are coming against Jesus, God's hand mysteriously is at work and his plan of salvation is unfolding. Jesus speaks of his coming death on the cross as the cup that the father has given him to drink. This is another reference to the Old Testament where if you look at the cup in the Old Testament, what it's speaking of, especially in the prophets, uh, Isaiah 51, Jeremiah 25, you can go read those. Um, The cup is a reference to God's wrath against sin. So the cup of God's wrath and judgment against sin is poured out uh, against evil and, and drunk down by evildoers in the Old Testament as condemnation and judgment. I know, it's, it's, it's heavy. And here we see Jesus telling us what his death on the cross means. He's going to his death to drink the cup that the Father has given him. Jesus is going to be the one who drinks the cup of judgment. It's going to be poured out on him. God's wrath against sin poured out on him so that we don't have to drink it. J.I. Packer uh, once said that the whole Christian message of the New Testament can be summed up in the phrase adoption through propitiation. Now, adoption, simple idea, right? We're adopted into the family of God. We're brought home as God's children, reconciled to him. But how is that done? Through propitiation. That's a word that means a sacrifice or an offering that turns away wrath. That's the way the New Testament speaks about the work of of Christ on the cross. Judgment, wrath poured out on him. And so we have to see this clearly here. And because today, maybe many have already heard this or you'll you'll hear it somewhere. People will try to tell you that the cross was not God's doing. You know, he didn't need it to forgive us. The cross just helps us see, you know, how, I guess, loving God is. But it's not about judgment. It's not about wrath against sin. God's not mad about sin. God's not mad at you or anybody else. And and, and the problem with that is that uh, the New Testament says a number of times, in a number of ways, that the cross was about God's wrath and judgment against sin. And Jesus being the perfect sacrifice and substitute for us. Taking all of that upon himself. Drinking the cup as this says, so that we could be forgiven. So substitution here is at at the heart of the gospel. And I want us to see that because one, the Bible teaches it uh, quite repeatedly, but also I want us to see the good news here. And in, in two ways, first we see that in this reality that God is a God who deals with sin. We talk about this a lot. God, God hates sin and evil and his wrath against evil and injustice in the world. That's, that's good news. That God is a God of justice. Even though sometimes in our, you know, kind of comfortable Western suburban American life, you know, the idea of judgment against sin or, you know, holding evildoers accountable seems kind of like dated. Uh, but that's not how much of the world sees it. 
That's not how the Bible talks about it. I even recently read of a story of a poor man in India who came to faith and uh, one of the main contributing reasons was because he read about God's judgment and justice in the Old Testament. And he got a hold of um, an Old Testament and he read in 1 Kings 21 the story of Naboth's vineyard. Many of you might be familiar with this story. And basically what happens in the story, quick summary, in 1 Kings 21 is a powerful king wants to basically have this piece of land, but it's owned by a man named Naboth and he doesn't want to sell the land. He's like, it's my land, too bad, you can't have it. And the king is like, well, okay. And him and his wife, Jezebel, come up with a little plan and they basically kill the guy and take his land. Um, It's just a, a real clear example of powerful people doing whatever they want to get what they want, hurting those uh, at the expense of other people. In this story, God intervenes. And he sends a prophet named Elijah who comes to the king who did this. And God says to him, you know, I'm going to bring disaster on you. There's going to be judgment that's going to fall on you. Your descendants are going to be wiped out. And you read through the description of how God's going to respond. And many of us might, might cringe and be like, whoa, like that's, Intense. God is like that mad about this sin? We say that's too harsh or I don't like that. But for this man in India, he read that account and that was part of what led him to faith because he said this. <coughs> he said, here in India, the gods serve the rich and don't care about the poor. But here is a God who cares about the poor and stands up to the cruelty of the rich. So what we look at culturally as like, ooh, that's kind of uncomfortable. Much of the world looks at that as good news. God is a God who cares for the poor. God is a God who stands with and defends those who have been wronged. God is a God who deals with injustice and he deals with abusers and he deals with those who have taken advantage of other people and he deals with those who murder and those who cheat and those who steal. God is a God of justice. And that is good news. We should celebrate that because evil won't go unpunished. The bad news wrapped up in that is that we look at our own lives and we, we see the sin in our own hearts. And then, you know what is this judgment and justice isn't just for, you know, people out there, like the really bad people, but also falls on, on us, how, how we have sinned and fallen short how we have lied and cheated and stealed and the list goes on and on. And we deserve judgment too. Then here is the good news, though, is that God is merciful and gracious. And that Jesus went to the cross to drink the cup of judgment, the cup of the Father, so that whoever believes in him would be saved. He went in our place so that we could be forgiven. He took the cup so that we wouldn't have to. And that's what we celebrate, friends, uh, this morning as as we take communion together. Uh, You should have received the elements as you came in. If you didn't get a communion cup, uh, there's some in the back of the room. You can can feel free to go grab one now if you need it. But communion is an opportunity for followers of Jesus to take these elements and remember the gospel. That Jesus went to the cross and he shed his blood and his body was broken for you and for me. And so we come in, in humility, aware of our need, And we come rejoicing what Jesus, our Savior, has done. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll take the elements together. Lord Jesus, we we come before you humbled. 
And we thank you that you drank the cup the Father gave you. You went to the cross. You died for us. You took upon yourself all the consequences and judgment for sin so that whoever believes in you would be forgiven, so that we could be healed in your name, so that through faith in you we could be made alive again and and given new hearts and your Holy Spirit within us and the hope of eternal life and the joy of being adopted into your family and walking with you now and forever. And then leading us to live new lives in your name, in our communities, for your glory and our good and the good of your world. Lord Jesus, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that has not put their faith in you and received this free gift of salvation, if there's anyone here who has not repented and put their trust in you, Jesus, as Lord and Savior for all you've done, I pray that now in the quietness of their heart, they would look to you. That they would respond to you and believe in you. And so, Lord, we take these elements uh, in in remembrance of you as you told us to do. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Well, friends, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. So this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Amen.